Virginia's win streak has stretched to five games. Virginia Tech snaps its losing streak at seven. All that and a longtime Cavalier player and coach is leaving Charlottesville. This week on Teal and Barber. Welcome to episode 100 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me as always, my co-host, the 14-time sports writer of the year, and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you, my friend? Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Did you ever think we'd make it to 100? Heck no. <laughs> we're uh, just like the injury report would indicate, we are day to day. Correct. Uh, but, but here we are for the hundredth time. Uh, I had grand visions, David, of, of having some special guests and uh, bringing back some of our first guests and uh, doing some cut ups of old shows with some highlights. And uh, it's a busy time of year. Yes. So <laughs> I, I didn't quite get to any of that. So for episode 100, you're going to get a lot of basically what you got for the first 99. So we hope you've been enjoying that. Uh, David, you and I were both uh, in Blacksburg, made the trip down to see (laughs) what I think in the preseason, you and I probably had circled as a pretty marquee matchup Mm -hmm. uh, between Duke, obviously a a different Duke team under John Shire now, not Mike Krzyzewski, and a Virginia Tech team that had won the ACC tournament title. It wasn't quite the matchup we had envisioned, correct? Well, not only did we anticipate it, Mike, being (laughs) a marquee matchup, ESPN did, hence Big Monday, right? (laughs) Yeah. National TV, 7 p.m. time slot, but neither team ranked a a wild stat that – Brian Cox, our friend in the, in the Virginia Tech Sports Information Office, unearthed last night was the first time that Virginia Tech had faced an unranked Duke team since January 1978. Goodness gracious. Right? Yeah. I would have guessed more recently than that. Yeah. So, so would I, but no. And obviously the Hokies are nowhere near the, the top 25, having lost, as, as you mentioned in the opening, seven consecutive games. But all that said, that was high-level stuff. Hype-wise, yeah, it probably went from big Monday to, to maybe medium Monday. <laughs> but I, I thought gameplay, it was extra large. I thought it was well-played by both teams. Really impressed with, with Duke's freshman star, Kyle Filipowski, uh, his athleticism, uh, his versatility, his ball skills, but really impressed, David, with the way Virginia Tech played. Now, let me preface that by saying, I thought Mike Young's team played pretty well against Virginia in a loss. I thought they played pretty well, particularly defensively, against Clemson in a loss. Those are their last two games going into this one. Mm -hmm. So I I wasn't anticipating that they would play poorly, um, but I thought this was the closest that I've seen to uh, what I expect from them, probably since that Carolina game w- when they moved the ball so well. W- what what did the Hokies do well against Duke last night? Make shots. <laughs> it makes a difference. I mean, I, I, mean I, I hate to be – I'm not trying to be glib either. Mike, they made shots like no other Duke opponent has this season. It was remarkable to me, and it's just kind of how sports rolls. We all know it, where teams will occasionally – play absolutely opposite to type and what the stats indicate. 
So Duke came in last night. You, you talked to John Shire. He will tell you that the Blue Devils have leaned on defense this year, and and the numbers bear that out. As we mentioned last week, this is the worst Duke shooting team since 1959-60. And lo and behold, last night, Duke shot it just fine. You shoot 48% on the road, and you only commit seven turnovers? I think that's a pretty good formula for winning a game. But the Hokies go out and shoot 57% for the game. The first Duke opponent to break 50 all season. Yeah, really impressive. And what one of the things that impressed me about Tech was, okay, they came out in the first half. They shot 68% from the field. That's fantastic. Seven for 10 from three-point range. Obviously, that's off the charts. In the second half, I thought Duke did a better job of not of contesting at least those three points, extending out. They went zone for a stretch, which to me was an, an odd choice when a, a team is hitting threes on you, but that's where they went. Uh, but in the second half, Virginia Tech found another way to score. I thought they attacked the rim. Grant Pasilli in particular was very yeah. aggressive going at the Duke bigs. I thought that was the thing, maybe more than anything, that impressed me about Virginia Tech was, hey, if you come out and you rain three-pointers all night, great, good for you. But to come out and get off to the start they got because of the threes and then kind of have that fade a little bit and find another way to be better than Duke, uh, that showed some resilience and, and some coaching, certainly. Uh, that impressed me from the Hokies. As well it should have. And all around, team-wide effort. I mean, MJ Collins off the bench. Uh, all five starters played a role uh, they they really attack this from a roster wide standpoint, and and they needed to. And and Duke ended up being shorthanded when Derek Whitehead, their second leading scorer in ACC play at ten points a game, he went down in the first half with that left leg injury. I don't know if you've. I have not seen an update no, today. Not, we're we're, we're recording Duke, yeah. this at seven o'clock. Tuesday night, and I have not seen anything out of the Duke camp. Yeah, and when John came, John Shire came to the post game. He said he hadn't spoken to the medical people yet. Uh, seemed to be from the replays like he's grabbing that that Achilles area. Yeah, oh. um, which is is a little bit concerning because certainly a phenomenal talent, and, and Duke's going to need him. Let's start with MJ Collins. You mentioned him. You wrote your column about him. If you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, it's at richmond.com, David's latest offering on MJ Collins, the big shot, some other contributions from him. The kid played 22 minutes, David, and played well. He had five rebounds. He was involved in a lot of the game. Obviously, the the go-ahead basket is is the big moment, but this is a, a player that seems to be coming into his own and really carving out himself a, a sizable role on this team. Especially as, as Mike Young mentioned in, in postgame, Mike, the last three against Virginia, Clemson, and then last night, six points, eight points, six points. And in big spots too, not just kind of random buckets that you don't recall. And he's, he's a, decent on the ball defender. He's scrappy. He rebounds. His ball security, especially for a freshman, is exceptional. I believe he's only committed seven turnovers all season. And you know that, that loose ball that he came up with, yeah. offensive rebound there, 
in the second half that extended a possession that turned into, you mentioned Grant Basile attacking the rim. <clears throat> he ended up with a, with a bucket in the paint after, um, after Collins came up. I believe it was a Padula missed three that ended up hitting the floor, and there's this scramble, and lo and behold, Collins comes out of there with it. Yeah, part of the reason that we're seeing more calls, and, and to me, the most astonishing thing about his game-winning basket <laughs> was that he was on the floor <laughs> at yeah. that moment, right? Uh, these are yeah, the he, minutes for yeah. Darius Maddox the last mm-hmm. four games. He played 30 minutes against Syracuse, had an offer. He played 25 minutes against Virginia, shot the ball okay, had, had a, his one of his best games of the year. 30, 25, down to 20 minutes against Clemson, another offer. He only played six minutes against Duke. And those minutes, in effect, went to MJ Collins. So yes, the fact that a young player has the stones to take and hit that shot. But the thing that jumped out to me was, wow, he's on the floor because he's at the moment, at least, replaced Maddox in the rotation. He has. I don't, I don't know that he will replace him in as a, as a starter. Although Maddox didn't start last night because that they went with Lynn Kidd at, at a center position to, to match Duke's size. But echoing what Tony Bennett often says when X player sees his minutes, case in point, Caden Shedrick recently declined. Mike Young said, Darius Maddox is going to be a big part of this team, this season's team moving forward. And I, I believe him. It's been interesting to hear Mike talk about Darius because on multiple occasions, he's essentially put it on himself. At least three times I can think of off the top of my head, he has said, I need to find a way to get Darius Maddox going, Mm -hmm. which is just an interesting, it, it tells you, hey, that maybe he feels like the way they're playing right now, it's not a fit. It's not getting, but that the, the Darius Maddox is still the player we saw a year ago in Brooklyn, right? And we thought he was this star on the rise and, and Mike's trying to figure out, okay, how do I get that out of him? How do I get that fit? Um, you mentioned Lynn Kidd. He played 20 minutes. Uh, I think he had four boards, four points. Uh, he impressed me, especially early. He, he was part of what steadied the ship after they fell behind seven, nothing against Duke. He's become a real, I mean, he only went two for five from the floor last night, which for him is awful. (laughs) I mean, he, he's been shooting at like a 60% plus clip, which is really good for, for anyone, especially someone like, like kid who really hasn't played a lot of college basketball you know transfer from clemson didn't play much there didn't play much for for the Hokies last season and he's morphed into quite the contributor yeah i I think all of these guys we're talking about too collins uh kid um maybe maddox still it feels like their best basketball of the year is ahead of them which is why there's some encouragement uh, if you're virginia tech now you've dug yourself quite a hole (laughs) there's no denying that the upcoming schedule is rough right and and that's part of why i think people viewed this duke game as at home as such a pivotal game they had lost on the road at syracuse they had lost on the road at uva they had lost on the road at clemson coming into this one home and now you have syracuse who has been up and down but is a quality opponent uh on saturday you go to miami uh, who is one of the best teams in the league, and then the return engagement in, at home against UVA on February 4th. 
this is a particularly brutal stretch of the schedule from the end of the losing streak uh, up through what's coming up next. I thought Duke was as much of a must win as you could have uh, at that point in the season. If you, if you want to turn things around. Agreed. And if you look conversely, Mike at the schedule after the rematch with Virginia, it appears emphasis on appears far more manageable. Boston college, Notre Dame, Georgia tech, Pitt rematch with Miami rematch with Duke, Louisville, Florida state. You can, you can get some things done there. And I would make the case, you know, here, here the Hokies sit two and seven in the ACC, right? Two and seven a year ago. But let's compare those two, two and seven starts. Last year, Tech was two and seven, 10 and 10. Now they're two and seven, 12 and eight. Last year, when they were two and seven in the league, they were 63rd on the net. Now, remember, they weren't going to get in the NCAA tournament That's unless right. they won the ACC tournament. So everything they did last year wasn't good enough to get in. But now they're 50th on the net. They didn't have any quad one wins at this point last season. They've got two now. The one thing that's going to be a killer and that they've got to rectify is right now the Hokies are 0-6 on the road. And the committee looks at your road record. Now, will they cut them a break because of Hunter Couture's absence for four games? Yes. And and he and three of those road losses are without him. But still, you're going to have to win some road games in order to put yourself in the at-large conversation. And those road games get to be Miami, Notre Dame, Georgia Tech, Duke, Florida State. Yeah, There, there are some wins to be had there. Yeah. Uh, and, and here's the thing that it always comes down to. If you're good and you deserve to be in the NCAA tournament, then all of those games are games that you have a shot at, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you are an NCAA tournament caliber team, if you are playing for that, you should be able to go to Miami and be competitive and, and possibly win that game. To go to Duke and possibly win that game is a hard sure. Here's what's interesting for me, David. When you think about this upcoming stretch, and part of the reason it was so big to get the Duke game, Syracuse, Miami, Virginia, if you had told me before the season, hey, look at that stretch of three games, what do they have to do there? Well, I'd say, I, I don't know, you know, at least win one of them, right? Mm-hmm. But because of the hole they dug, it feels like, you absolutely have to win two of these next three to be in striking distance of the things you want. And that, to me, is a tough road, although two of those games are at home. Agreed. Uh, and right now, Mike Ken Palm and, and his predictive metrics have the Hokies finishing 9-11 and 11 in the ACC, which obviously will not cut it. Yeah, I don't know that his metrics take into account the fact that uh, this team's got some resolve to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, 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 and that's that's one of the things that impressed me. David, I think going forward, the biggest thing that I saw Monday night against Duke was I saw Virginia Tech play the way I thought they were going to play this year. Move the ball, hitting threes, playing pretty good defense at times. I, I know Duke obviously put up some numbers. Uh, I thought I saw a team playing against Duke, not just pulling out a win, but playing a version of basketball that will get all these things done that we're talking about. Um, did you see enough from the Hokies on, on Monday night against Duke, or are there still areas that have to dramatically improve for for them to make a run that we're describing? Well, I saw a much better Sean Padula mm-hmm. than as of late. I saw the Padula of 
early in the season when he was playing at an all-conference level. And then, perhaps not coincidentally, when Couture was out, then defenses were really able to shade Padula's way, and his production really lagged. But last night, 16 points, 3 of 5 from deep, 5 assists, a couple turnovers, but 2 steals. That's good stuff from Sean Padula. And then, as as Mike Young alluded to, he thought last night might have been, now he's had some other big games, but might have been Basile's best game yeah. as a Hokie. And, and you mentioned the way he he went at it in the post. Yeah, he was he was unafraid. Now, did Filipowski light him up on the <laughs> other end? Yeah, sure did. But Basile didn't back down. And Filipowski is going to light up a lot of people in this league. Darn right. Uh, but no, it's, it's a great point. I, mean, I, I think that that's the thing about Basile's game that impressed me the most is I think some of his other big games, it's been a lot of you know perimeter, right? Knocking down those shots, being that kind of stretch forward, which is great. <laughs> that, that is a great skill set to have. But this was his, to me, toughest game. This was, to me, his most... I can get it done in the paint. I can get it done going at you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to grab some rebounds, some offensive boards. I'm going to be in in position for putbacks. Um, just a different style, and it was exactly what they needed. Certainly, and we've touched on it without hitting it. I mean, the biggest thing here is Mike Young said after the game that Hunter Couture was Hunter Couture in this yeah. game. He was fully back. Obviously, the numbers were great. Um, and how about Couture? Uh, with the steal that, that clinches the game, uh, jumping in front of an inbound pass that was uh, headed from Ryan Young to Jeremy Roach and uh, steals the ball. And it was funny. I asked him about it after the game, and he said, you know, I, I was waiting for Young to come foul me uh, to kind of put us at the free throw line, do that dance for the final 10 seconds, eight seconds, whatever it was going to be. And uh, he's like, when I when I realized he wasn't coming, he's like, that's when I felt this wave of relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, the losing streak was over, that they had this one. Uh, afterward, he also said something interesting. I, I asked him about um, just his perspective on the losing streak, how it, how it weighed on him. Um, and this is what he said. But at the end of the day, we're all kids. Like we're still in college. I think it's like it's we're gonna be okay. We're not in the real world yet. We're we're on scholarship playing basketball. Like it can't be that bad. Obviously, you don't want to lose games, but we're all blessed to be in the situation. Um, you just keep coming back each day and working hard and staying together, and we'll be all right. Oh, that was some pretty good perspective. Uh, and certainly, Hunter Couture is a competitive guy, and I know people could sometimes read it and think like, "Well, geez, you know, doesn't isn't he upset they're losing?" Of course he was, but I thought that was. Pretty good perspective from a guy to be able to say, hey, take a deep breath, chill. Our lives are pretty good, and and we'll get this basketball thing figured out. Think that comes from the top, Mike? I, exactly. And it's it's funny because when I asked Mike Young, his answer implied a lot more pressure and a lot more grief, but mm-hmm. on himself. And yes. what, he, what he said exactly. was, I hate it. It's terrible. It's brutal. I hate it for my players. Because I said to him, I said, you've been doing this a long time. You've been through this. You know you're going to come out the other side. Does it make it easier? And he said, no, not at all, because it's this group of kids suffering. Mike Young can handle it, right? Mike Young can lose seven games because he knows he's going to come out the other side. Uh, But it was that pressure of, I want this off of my players. And it was interesting that his players had taken almost the opposite tact of, Hey, it's it's going to be okay, you know. Mike Young's going to get us through this. We're going to get ourselves through this, um, and they did it against Duke. Yep, and you know, and part of it is is last season 
where a large number of these guys were in the same two and seven hole and got it to 11 and nine. Yeah, I mean, I'm an unabashed Mike Young fan, but I think he was fibbing a little bit when he said Hunter Couture's return isn't going to be the cure-all, and I don't want these guys relying on last year's magic. Uh, Hunter Couture's return fixes a lot. (laughs) I I know his point. You got to still play. You still got to improve. You got to do other things. Uh, Hunter Couture's return fixes a lot of things offensively, defensively, leadership, and and all that. Um, And this team does have that memory to fall back on that that knowing that hey you're not out of it until you're out of it so uh they showed that against duke i thought that was just a massive win for them and um it makes the rest of the season interesting now it does starting starting saturday night you know against a syracuse team mike that is one of the few squads this season that really beat the Hokies convincingly. You know, I believe it's six of their eight losses are by five points or less. But they they lost a 10-point game at Syracuse that was not even remotely a 10-point game. I think it was up to 22 in in the second half. And it was it was just a game that that the Orange dominated and and Virginia Tech did not play well. So that's that that's a really to, to me that's an interesting game. Yeah, it was it was with eleven minutes to go, Syracuse led sixty five forty three. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, dri- drive home safely. Yeah, I say it's what I call a, a change the channel change yeah. the channel game. Yeah, you want to watch, but but that one's over. Uh, before we move on, I know we've spent a lot of time here talking at that Duke Tech game, um, and it was a lot of fun, and, and, and Red Panda was there, and I got to go to Cabo Fish Taco for a pregame meal, so there, there was a lot good there. David, I, I'm going to get slaughtered in my emails and my Twitter if I don't address this and, and, and get your take. Oh, yeah. The non-called foul. Yeah. Right? MJ Collins hits Maybe the right the biggest shot of his college career to date, certainly. I, I don't yeah. know enough about his life, but the biggest shot of his college career turns around and gives one of those punch the air celebrations. Mike Young's a big fan of those. He's always doing it on the sideline. But this punch the air, <laughs> it, it connected with Kyle, Kyle Filipowski, uh, right. and it connected solidly. There was no whistle. So I want to ask you two things. Number one, should there have been a foul called there? And number two, if Mike Krzyzewski is coaching the Duke Blue Devils. Is there any chance that goes unwhistled? Sure. It, de- you know, it depends on who's on the whistle, right? I mean, s- s- some some referees have no problem standing up to Mike. <laughs> Others perhaps would cower and, and call something there. Now, where we sit on the press perch is far away from the action now is it at the basket in front of us we were but we were behind that that particular basket and i saw it happen and i was like oh but they went to the monitor and they looked at it and they determined you know nothing nefarious here move on and i didn't see anything from john shire that indicated that he vehemently disagreed uh, you know, he mentioned that Filipowski had to had to puke in the huddle because it, you know, he caught him in the throat. Then he was fine, and he put, you know, he he remained in the game. Uh, and then, you know, I, I was texting with, with, with someone, um, an administrator, let's just say, who was watching the game last night, and he too was fine with the no call. 
That's what I don't know the wording of the rule, but my understanding had been that the intent is irrelevant. You're responsible for, for your arms and your hands, just like if an elbow slides up in the paint and catches somebody, you're not ejected, but that is a, a flagrant foul. So isn't this, the, isn't this the same scenario? Well, you could call him for a foul, but what would that do? Right, I mean, it, it's it's not like you're 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 going to to to, to call a flagrant and, and technical and all that. Now, would that would that have put Duke on the line? That I'm not sure of the rule because it's it's an at that point is it's is it still an offensive foul? I, you know, I don't know what the ruling there would have been in terms of free throws. Yeah, it was it was certainly an, an interesting little quirk. My take on it has been this. It, it probably should have been whistled a foul. It probably should have been the the, the flagrant one. I mean, it okay. not intentional, but you're responsible for your. I'm glad they didn't call it, and not just because I like Mike Young and, and I'm glad things worked out for him. I'm glad they didn't call it because those were two teams playing really well. Let them decide it on the floor. By the letter of the law, to me, and I have to go back and look more. I thought it should be called. I thought it was an obvious missed call there, um, but I'm glad they didn't call it because hmm. I thought those two teams, I enjoyed watching them sort it out on, on, on the floor as opposed to a flagrant getting the shots, getting the ball and, and really changing the, the complexion of those final seconds. Uh, but who knows? We'll, we'll see. I mean, certainly the league hasn't said anything about it, so it couldn't have been a, an egregious miss, I guess. And, and you mentioned John Shire didn't seem to be uh, too worked up in, in the post game. Moving on to Virginia. Uh, the opposite side, right? Tech had lost seven in a row before the Duke win. Virginia's found itself. It's got a little roll going. Part of the reason, David, maybe this small lineup that, that Tony Bennett has gone to, they seem to be doing a better job of spreading the floor, getting good looks from three. Now, as you mentioned with Tech, the difference here, the ball goes in the hoop. It certainly mm-hmm. went in the hoop against Wake Forest, the 76-67 win against what I still think is a, is a really good Wake Forest team. Uh what we're seeing from Virginia now, I don't know that it's quite to the level that we saw when, when they were out in Vegas, how impressed I was with them there, but it's been pretty darn impressive here of late. Well, Mike, Wake Forest was 10-0 and at home until the Cavaliers strolled in there and made 15 threes after missing its first or the, missing their first six. Is yeah. that right? So they missed their first six. Made their then next they seven. hit their next seven. Right. And and you're bonkers. thinking, what is going on here? Yeah. To- totally bonkers and and random. But they are they are playing at a seriously high level. And yeah, I've thought for weeks now they're the best team in the league. And they will be the number one seed in the ACC tournament when we get to Greensboro in March. Yeah, we'll get into that a little more later, but I, I agree with you. And, and you know, a couple of things that impressed me in the Wake game, they go with the smaller lineup. They've done that for the past I guess, three and a half games. Uh, I talked about some of the advantages it's bringing to them when they do that, uh, playing Vanderplas and, and, and Gardner and not playing Shedrick or, Kaff- or Caffaro. Uh, but the thing that was interesting, they out-rebounded Wake Forest. Uh 38-32, I believe, in this game. They had 10 offensive rebounds. Uh, that's impressive to me. And a big part of that is Ryan Dunn, the freshman. Yep. He is, I mean, he's a, a menace rebounding the basketball. He has both that knack, that feel for it. And Tony Bennett talked about this Monday on, on the teleconference, but he's got both this knack for it, uh, 
and he's got the physical skills to back it up, right? It's great to have a sense of where the ball's going and get yourself in that position. It's another thing to be able to out jump a guy and, and get the ball. Um, he's got that. He did it. He had a huge, David, huge putback shot. Dunk. That too. But he had a putback dunk on the miss by Franklin that mm-hmm. you were just like, okay, th- that is a next level offensive skill. You mentioned he had the block shot on uh, that, Tyree Appleby. Yes. Huge I thought play. that was immense. Huge play in the game. Uh, he's doing it at both ends. And yes, they're playing a small lineup. They're not playing small with that small lineup. Yeah, not especially when, when Dunn's out there. He is so daggone long now. I mean, wow. I mean, he's... <laughs> That cat is a fresh. He is going to be such a problem for people. Yeah. Um, and then the other guy who was huge in this game was Armand Franklin, who had his first mm-hmm. career double-double, 25 points, 10 rebounds. Again, 10 it rebounds. goes back to you've got to get these guards involved. And Tony Bennett said, he said, you know, when we've been really good, our guards have been involved in rebounding. And, and part of that, yeah, it's Kihei Clark chasing down the long rebounds with his speed. That's great. But part of it is, hey, you're, you're big, strong guys. Your gardener, your Vanderplas, sometimes their job in the rebounding picture is to hold guys off, right? Is to get that position and hold guys out so they're not, and then that ball's up for grabs and who's going to go get it? Um, and Franklin and Dunn and Reese Beekman, those guys are pretty good at going to get it. It's one of the things that I think has been working well with this smaller lineup. Agreed. Um, you know, like you mentioned, 10 rebounds for, for Franklin the other day. Uh, Beekman only had three, which is low for him. But combined, you know, Beekman, Clark, Franklin only have, what, three turnovers between them? Maybe just two. Two. Two turnovers because Beekman did not have a turnover. Franklin did not have a turnover. Clark Kihei had, had two. Yeah. Yeah, and Beekman had six assists, Kihei mm-hmm. had four. Overall, in that game, and, and it goes back to, again, spreading the floor, moving the ball well, 19 assists on 24 turnovers, made baskets yeah. uh, and just seven turnovers. That is and, – and Virginia has led basically wire to wire. They've led the ACC in assist-to-turnover ratio. Um, they're doing it at an even higher level right now. A lot of encouraging signs right now from Tony Bennett's team. Yes, very, very much so. And at some point, they'll need Shedrick again. Yeah. <laughs> They they will or maybe I mean, Caffaro had a had a bucket the the other day. Mm-hmm. I mean, he only played four minutes, uh, but that they will they will be needed, and you know we'll we'll see if they're ready. That has been a trademark of the Tony Bennett Virginia program. That is pretty unique to, to Charlottesville and to Virginia. It happens to some other. I understand it happens, to, but repeatedly he's had guys who. As a media guy, I say, oh, he's buried in the rotation. He's in the doghouse. He's never playing again. He's going to be transferring. You know, and it's two weeks. I'm not talking about a game or two. I'm talking about weeks where we don't see a guy. And then all of a sudden, he's called on. He's ready. He plays well. He has a role. And then maybe he goes back again. And for whatever reason, and it's a credit to Tony Bennett and his staff, the guys in his program have overwhelmingly been willing to accept that. Now, Tony talked about this on the teleconference Monday, the position it puts him in, uh, the fact that he addressed it with the entire team, the fact that it's the part of coaching he, he hates he most, hates. Yeah. right, is guys working hard, but being ready. Uh, it was really interesting what he said, and, and, and here, here I'll let you hear from him. Here's what Tony Bennett had to say. I, I hate this about coaching. That's the one thing that you got these young men who work hard, they play. But one thing I did 
you know, is, you know, of course, talking to Caden. And, and I just said in front of the team, when you start and then all of a sudden you're taking out a starting lineup and you're a big part and your minutes get reduced, um, I said, that's hard. I want to acknowledge that in front of the team because sometimes stuff that goes unsaid is, is it's up for too much interpretation. I said, and it's hard for Tane and Poppy, guys that aren't getting to play that much, as it was for Ryan. I said, but don't lose heart. You keep working. You guys who aren't playing, your opportunities will come. And the other guys that are playing have a responsibility to encourage. And the work is done in practice. And, you know, again, we're playing well with a smaller lineup. And doesn't mean Caden won't be part of it or, or Poppy or those other guys. So you just stay encouraged. But that's the hard part about this this coaching profession. And you want to you wanna honor and, and kind of reward all your guys because they all love playing and working. But when something's really working and there's chemistry and some things are happening, you go with it. But you just keep staying ready. And so that's just all you can do is be honest in those situations and uh, Caden is he's he's a, a strong young man and he and he's good and he'll keep working and there's going to be opportunities for him and the other guys and um, it's up to us to just speak the truth and keep working and and him being ready. So David, certainly uh, keeping in character for Tony Bennett in terms of the way he carries himself, the way he conducts himself, the way he respects. But a very valid point and maybe part of the reason uh, that his players accept these roles. <laughs> And stay ready because they don't feel forgotten and they don't feel buried and they don't feel ostracized. They don't feel criticized, right? They feel like, hey, this is your role right now is to be patient. Uh, it, it always amazes me how well he's able to get guys to buy into that. Well, Tony Bennett lived it in the NBA. You know what? He, he was a 10, 15 minute a night guy in, in that range. And I'm sure there were nights where he was DNP coach's decision and it chafed him a little bit and he probably learned from that and it probably informs how he coaches. And it certainly has been working. And and I think you're right that Shedrick in particular, there's going to be a need for him because David, you think about some of these ACC opponents, you've got to have a rim protector out there. That's the big thing they're giving up right now. Uh, Even Dunn's block was more of a man-to-man defense um, you know, one-on-one as opposed to what Shedrick brings you is in the event that somebody beats the pack, somebody gets to the rim, he can clean that up. And, you know, there were times in that pit game that, that I thought they were just not as good defensively with Shedrick off the floor and, and other times. And so there's going to be a matchup uh, where they're going to need that size. They're going to need that strength. And most importantly, David, they're going to need that rim protection. Maybe Saturday against Boston College and Quentin Post. I'd- what a perfect segue. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here for you, Mike. Uh, you you make the show run smoothly. But no, you're absolutely right, right? Post is the kind of player. Uh, Boston College is the kind of team. They like to play physical. They like to play in the paint. They like to crash the boards. Might you not need a little more size or, hey, Francisco Caffro, a little more muscle to match up with Eagles? Yeah. And wh- what about d- down the road? I mean, DJ Burns uh, of NC State, the, the aforementioned Kyle Filipowski, uh, you know, ag- against Duke, uh, the, the rematch against Carolina w- with presumably a healthy Armando Baycott. 
Hello. There, there, like you said, there is going to be a time and a place for, for Caden Shedrick. And uh, you never know, right? We, we keep praising Tony Bennett and Virginia because their guys seem to answer the bell. But uh, you know, it's true of everybody till the first time they don't answer the bell. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll see uh, if Shedrick is up to that challenge. Now, you mentioned Boston College. You mentioned Quentin Post. That, that game is noon Saturday. Virginia's got some time off. Tony Bennett gave the team off Sunday and Monday to kind of regroup, refresh, get healthy, and then it's get back to work uh, Tuesday for, for this game. What do you make of this matchup? What, what can Boston College do? Because they, they've struggled this year. What can Boston College do to make things difficult for the Cavaliers? Boston College, Mike, will have to mimic its effort against Notre Dame from over the weekend when you talk about the randomness of sports. In the previous outing for the Eagles, they went 0 for 6 from 3 against Carolina. They turn around against Notre Dame and go 10 for 19. That'll work every time. And it may have even been 11 for 19, uh, maybe selling them short one. But the, the Eagles are going to have to to shoot exceptionally well to have a chance a- against UVA. And this is the first of two meetings between these teams. Yeah, and this one is in Charlottesville. Yeah. Boston College is 1-5 on the road this year. Um, certainly not uh, not one of their strengths. It, it'll be, to me, it's one of those games where, for Virginia, it's a statement game, not because it's against some ranked opponent. It's can you just take care of business yep. in, in the games you should absolutely have, right? And that's that's part of you know what, what you are if you're a great Virginia team. You've been able to win on the road if you're a good Virginia team. They just went and did that at Wake. And you've been able to absolutely take care of business in, in the games where you're a big favorite, where nobody's put you on upset alert, where, where it looks like you should have it. Um, come out, win this game convincingly, comfortably, uh, maybe get to, to play some guys who haven't, um, especially because of the matchup. To me, that that's the mission here as you get ready to host the Eagles. Uh, who is Who is the biggest threat to Virginia? going down the stretch here for the regular season title, not necessarily Greensboro, because I think North Carolina is going to be a different animal (laughs) when we get to Greensboro with their fans and all that. But for the regular season race, who's the biggest threat to the Cavaliers? Miami. I I think they're the second. If if you ask me to rank the top four teams in the league, I would say Virginia, Miami, Clemson, Carolina would would, would be number four. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think that's right. Um, Clemson, you know, I, I, again, they've played enough games. They're sixteen and four. They're eight and one in the yeah. league. They're good. Oh yeah, I, right? I no, like no, that squad yeah. now, man. Yeah, no, nobody's saying they're not. But my, Miami, that firepower, they're, they're scoring in so many different ways. And the biggest thing for Miami in recent weeks, I thought they've been better defensively. Not great, right? Clemson's great defensively. Virginia's great defensively. Miami's been okay defensively, they have. which is ask Jim Larinaga. That's point, a pretty big stride from where they started. Um, where I think they've really made some yes, progress. Yes, Miami on that end lost, of the floor. but the Canes lost a, a close game at Duke, in which Isaiah Wong d- gave them nothing, nothing on the offensive end, and yet they they were still in it. But Miami, you know, we've we've mentioned it before. The Hurricanes' Achilles' heel is size, the lack mm. thereof. You know, is great a rebounder as Norshad, Norshad or Mir is the transfer from Arkansas State, and he is a load. But he's only six seven, and when he gets in foul trouble, they are toast 
on the interior. And that that's what concerns Jim Laranaga most. I know that's what concerns their fans the most. Because th- that backcourt now, <clears throat> as it proved a year ago with, with Wong and getting to the Elite Eight, <clears throat> you know, you you add Nigel Pack in into that mix and they can go now. Yes. Sinus, yes. No doubt. And Wong, uh, in his defense, was was apparently very under the weather. <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't just that they got nothing. He was he was sapped of his energy. He's been uh, medicated since then and is doing much better. But, yeah, I agree, agree with everything. I, I really like Miami. I really like what they present by spreading the floor. I worry about them, yes, in, in, in matchups with size. Um, mm-hmm. But, again, as coaches will always remind you, you know, if you're a problem for me on one end because of the size – I'm a problem for you on the other end, right, because of the matchup. And that's what we've seen from Miami offensively, that if guys want to leave their bigs out there and play a big lineup, yeah, they're going to get buckets on Miami, but they're not going to be able to slow down the Hurricanes uh, at the other end. Now, a team that unfortunately is is going about as slow as you can go is Notre Dame. Uh, They just lost their third straight. You referenced that game a moment ago. They're (laughs) 9-11 overall. They're 1-8 in the league, but... Uh, the big news for the Irish was Mike Bray, who we both unabashedly adore. Uh, Mike Bray announced that that this will Fabulous. be his final season. He, he is retiring after the year what, because Dave, what he's do you been there so Bray's long. He's been there twenty three years. Notre Number Dame. one, that's a in in an era for major college basketball. You know, he's he's competed in nothing at Notre Dame besides the Big East and the ACC. In the last twenty three years, against that kind of competition. And to have made 13 NCAA tournaments and back-to-back Elite Eights and to have won an ACC tournament, that, that's – I mean, he's the winningest coach in, in program history that he did it in such a pleasant-mannered way and represented his institution ju- just adds to it. But among Mike Bray's many strengths, perhaps the greatest, is a keen sense – of self-awareness. And Mike actually said this in his press conference the day he announced that he was stepping down. We went, and, and this is him talking, he said, we went to 12 NCAA tournaments in my first 17 years. I've only been to one since. That's not, that's not good enough. I'm not doing it well enough. It's time for a new voice. And, and it reminded me of Roy Williams at, at, at Carolina who was he was he was he was so hard on himself at, at his retirement presser just and and the heels had made the NCAA tournament that season but Wisconsin had bushwhacked him in Indianapolis it was the covid tournament and Roy just said I'm I'm not nearly good enough anymore this has got to change and I I applaud coach you know anyone who realizes I'm not getting it done. It's time. It's someone else's turn, and that's what Mike Bray decided. I think it's um, I think it's Ivory Soap that had the uh, campaign, the advertising campaign. Are you comfortable in your skin? And hmm. uh, Mike Bray would be a perfect yeah. <laughs> spokesman. I, I don't know if he wants to pose some of the ways they posed their models in those Ivory ads, but uh, Mike Bray would be the perfect spokesman for comfortable in your skin. Uh, always friendly fun to talk to on those teleconferences and post games win or lose he did an amazing job at notre dame in a place where and it's a double-edged sword undeniably a football school right and we would see videos of mike bray 
like right in the damn cafeteria, standing up on a table, like trying to get the students to come out and support the team. Mm -hmm. He didn't mind doing that. He didn't mind that role and, and being that kind of second fiddle program at the same time it, it took some pressure off him yes, right it did. you know he, he you know he might have been pushed out or leaned on earlier if it wasn't that but one everybody loves him he's incredibly lovable and two he's a damn good basketball coach <laughs> uh, you know Notre Dame for all that it, it draws football wise and recruiting and it's not the same for basketball and Mike, Mike has made it um, just a really consistently competitive successful program uh I talked to him on Monday about, you know, he, he mentioned he's got some fifth-year seniors. Six of them. And the fact that he had kind of joked with them like, hey, let's all go out together. <laughs> um, now, this is not the way any of them envisioned it. And I'm on record. I thought Notre Dame was going to be one of my sleeper picks this year with, with all that veteran play. Um, it just hasn't happened for them. And then I asked him, what about the young guys? And he got choked up, right, on that Monday teleconference. He got real emotional talking about, having to leave for guys who who signed up to play for him for three years, mm-hmm. four years. He said he talked to some of the incoming, or at that point, he talked to all of the incoming guys and um, you know, told them, hey, you're going to have flexibility. If Notre Dame's not for you, if playing for me was the thing, you know, you're going to have your options, but but give it a chance. And, and you know, obviously, Notre Dame's been a great experience for him, um, but you could tell the, the, the human side. And there, I always say this, there's no right time to do it, right? There's no right time to do it because at some point you've got kids who just got there to play for you. Yeah, and and not not only that, it's a staff too. And, and it, yeah, he 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 mentioned you know he worries about his staff, but of course you know they all know they they signed up for the coaching biz. They understand how it works. And Mike Bray has has been at Notre Dame for so long. What people tend to forget is that the Fighting Irish had gone ten consecutive years without making the NCAA tournament before Mike Bray arrived. And to think that he subsequently took them to 12 in 17 years. I think if you were going to distill his, his tenure there into one stat, that would be it because of, because of the context that the previous decade puts it in that 12 and 17 years becomes even more impressive. Absolutely. The simplest way to say it is he took Notre Dame and made it a perennial NCAA tournament team. Mm -hmm. And that is quite an an accomplishment. Uh, We saw Digger Phelps go from there to being quite the television personality. Now, I don't know what Mike wants next in his future, probably to to have a stiff drink when the season's over and, and sit back and relax a little. But David, he would be phenomenal. On television, would he oh not? Oh my gosh! I mean, the only the, the only thing that might lead him to say no thanks to TV, he might have to shave more often. <laughs> shave, shave and dress code, you know. And you're talking about a guy who I, I first met him when he was at Delaware, and he was the uh, the turtleneck coach. That was his his original style, and and then I think he brought it to Notre Dame. He did. He had the mock turtle going on for a while at Notre Dame, and yeah, uh, no, he'd be he'd be great at, at TV. I've seen I've seen some. I think it was Jeff Goodman tweeted that Bray would be great working alongside Dan Gavitt at the NCAA to kind of right the ship for for national college basketball because Mike served tirelessly for the National Association of Basketball Coaches, including a, a, a one season as its president, served on numerous committees and boards, 
And he's, he's always been someone who had the good of the overall game in mind, not just his own program. Uh, and I, you know, and that comes, you know, look at, for, you know, his mentors, Morgan Wooten at DeMatha for whom he played and then served in as assistant coach. And then seven seasons at Duke where, well, by the way, they went to six final fours and won a pair of national championships. Yeah, that that might have been the highlight of, of Monday's call was uh, Jeff Capel and Mike Bray. Jeff Capel, the pit coach, and Mike Bray were uh, together at, at Duke, first with Capel as a player and Bray as a coach, and then uh, later as assistants. And uh, <laughs> Capel was recalling Mike Bray keeping the team loose and, and challenging him in games of horse and hitting trick shots and crazy trick shots and horse. And Mike Bray, who follows Jeff Capel on the ACC call, broke in to Jeff Capel and said, hey, Jeff, we're playing each other in the final regular season yes. game. How about we come out at halftime and we challenge each other and we play a game of horse? And if they're going to do that, I may have to lobby our boss to send me out there to, to cover that because, uh, boy, that would be a heck of a lot of fun with two of the, the really good guys that we enjoy in, in this league. No, that, it'd be a lot of fun if those two guys do hook up that way. And, and a lot of people, I think, have those memories of, of Mike Bray and his tenure. Beloved at Notre Dame, a guy who's been beloved at Virginia, David, has been Marcus Yes, Hayes. Going back to his time as a player, quarterback and receiver, a slash guy, biscuit wildly popular, <laughs> great success as a player, a coach here with three different head coaches. Um, he was there with Mike London, stuck it out, was there with Bronco Mendenhall, stuck it out for the change, was there for the first season with Tony Elliott. He accepted a job at Penn State to be the receiver's coach. David, one, can't begrudge him that as a great career move uh, for a guy who I think has a very bright future in college coaching. Fans losing their mind a little bit, Virginia fans, over what does it mean about the program. So let me start there before we get into Hagen's and and what he's meant and done. Does it mean anything to you that Marcus Hagen's is leaving Virginia other than he had a great opportunity to, to go work at Penn State? Yes. It does because I, I think it's somewhat telling and not surprising, and I don't think it indicates anything unusual or nefarious or, or anything like that. But two of the three coaches whom Tony Elliott retained from Bronco Mendenhall staff have now left. Garrett Tujay goes to NC State, and Marcus goes to Penn State. Clint Sintum remains. But I think that's just natural. You know, it's 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 a new era and you know, new ways of doing things. And Mike, what we'll never know. And it and I don't I don't even know if if Marcus knows is how what transpired with the deaths of the three players, two of whom played for Marcus, how that all how that all impacted him emotionally and as he as he pondered his future uh i i i can't imagine what that was like for him uh because i've known marcus since he was in high school and i consider him one of the just the finest people i've met in this business i i I believe i i know his heart i've been around him enough uh i know his wife lauren and you know, been around their children, and it it just had to have been as it was for everyone. But but just such a, a trying time. And what 
it's hard to, to think of this. I, I Googled his bio earlier to, to check when I knew we'd be talking about him. He's been at UVA for so long, you tend to think he's older. He's only 40. Yeah. I mean, he's still a pup. And, and a pup with a bright future in this business. And that's why I think a move to Penn State, a move to the Big Ten makes sense. Yeah, we saw with Shane Beamer, right? Shane got this shot to be the head coach at South Carolina in large part, not because he's Shane Beamer, but because he parlayed being Shane Beamer into working on a bunch of staffs with a bunch of really good head coaches and learning a lot of different ways to do it and working a lot of different positions and and expertise. You need that if you're going to be a head coach. You can't just be one place um, and stay. And that's a great thing to do, sure. And, and I know he was very happy in Charlottesville. His family was very happy. Everybody there in, in Charlottesville loved him. But to build your career, it is a good thing to do to go out and find that experience and to do it at Penn State, to do it in the Big Ten, especially as the Big Ten and SEC to continue to separate themselves. Um, to me, this was a no-brainer, but I do think you are 100% right that, that what happened here um, in, in that tragedy, I think, affected Marcus and his family so profoundly that not that he had to go, but I think a fresh start somewhere else in this moment will be very, very good for him. Agreed. And and, and I, I think what also needs to be noted, Mike, is is Marcus's involvement with groundskeepers and how he always strived, uh, especially in his room, as the coaches like to say, with, with his receivers. It was about far more than football. It was about life at large. It was about real stuff, important stuff. And he embraced all that, and he he wanted his players. Yeah, I, I to think be it's aware. A lot of coaches talk educated. about you know your your players and being like family. Didn't mean they always uh, had to agree. Go check out <laughs> an Instagram feed from from Biscuiter's wife and the number of photos of their boys playing little league with UVA wide receivers there in the crowd, or coming up to see them after an at bat. Uh, we're going to the movies together. Um, his players are a part of his life that will happen at Penn State. I did a long interview with a Penn State writer today about uh, Coach Hagens. I think it's a great hire for them. I think it's a great move for him. Uh, and, and you and I, I know, both wish him nothing but the best. Well, this has been the 100th episode. And uh, sorry we didn't have balloons or a band or any fanfare. But hey, we had a lot to talk about today. We had a lot of a lot of good stuff to delve into. So thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer and yours truly. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again next week.